right, I would invite your attention tonight to three different Gospels, and I will give you the, uh, the references so that you can find each of them and follow along. Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, and then Mark chapter 6, and John chapter 6, so it's Matthew 14. Mark 6 and John 6. The reason we're reading three different Gospels tonight is because it's the same story, but these Gospel writers, each of them give details that the other two don't. And so to get the full story, we need to read all three of their accounts. I don't apologize for reading Scripture in church. I sometimes cringe when I hear a preacher say, for the sake of time, I'm going to dispense with the reading of the Word. I feel like standing and saying, brother, if you don't do anything else, please read the Bible. We know that's right. Not sure what you're going to say, but we know the Bible's right. So I don't apologize for reading Scripture tonight. And besides, this story is a rather short one. But we want to read Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22, and then over to Mark 6, and then John 6. Matthew 14, before I begin, maybe I should just set the stage for you so we remember what the background is. Jesus has just performed one of his greatest miracles. I don't know how you rate miracles, but this has to be towards the top. He has fed 5,000 men. The Bible doesn't tell us how many women and children were there, but scholars tell us there were likely 15,000 or more if you include all the women and children who were present. But Jesus fed 5,000 men and women and children with five loaves and two fish. But the unique thing about this, this uh, miracle was that Jesus used his disciples. They didn't just observe Jesus performing a miracle like they had every other miracle Jesus had done, but he used them. They were actually a part of the divine miracle. They were each one with a basket, 12 disciples handing out bread and fish to those thousands of people on the mountainside. And I, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but in my imagination, I don't think I'm too far off. I try to put myself in those disciples' sandals. If I were one of the disciples and I had had a basket of bread and fish and I had handed out bread and fish, think how long that must have took. Thousands of people. And each time you reach in and you think you're about to run out, there's another supply of bread and fish. I don't know how Jesus did it, but I can tell you what I would have done. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say what the disciples did with those baskets. But if I would have been a disciple and I would have had a basket and God would have used me to do that mighty miracle, I wouldn't have casually or quickly discarded that basket. I wouldn't have found the, quick, the, the closest trash can to throw it away. I would have taken it with me home to show Melody and the boys, you'll never believe what Jesus did today. I don't think I'm too far off. And unless I miss my guess, there were 12 baskets. Because you remember, each of them had a basket full of bread and fish when they walked away from the mountain that day. I think each disciple carried a basket with them onto the boat, which is where our story begins. Verse 22 of Matthew 14. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. 
And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. They thought they'd seen a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And then Mark chapter 6 and verse 45 Mark 6, 45, and straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. Mark 6, 48, and he saw them toiling in rowing, For the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them, which I take to mean he was walking parallel to the boat at least for a while, all the while drawing nearer. When they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid." And then John chapter 6 and verse 16. John chapter 6 and verse 16. John says, And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, that's three or four miles, the Sea of Galilee is seven miles wide, at its widest, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. I'd like to talk to you tonight about finding peace in the middle of your storm. Finding peace in the middle of of your storm. When we speak of storms, we all know what we mean. We're speaking of heartaches and tears, disappointments and troubles, fears that are common to the human experience. I've been in church all of my life, and one thing I have figured out is that we church folks clean up nice. We come to church, and often we have our best clothes on, and when someone asks how we are, we smile and say we're fine. But just below the surface, Many of us are dealing with private pain and confusion, question marks. That phone call that turns your world upside down. The unexpected diagnosis that shakes you to your core. The betrayal of people you thought were friends that leave you gasping in unspeakable pain. Relationship conflicts. Circumstances that threaten to do you or your loved ones great harm. Storms come into our lives in a variety of ways. And uh, the storm that came into these disciples' lives this night in question was unpredictable and sudden. In fact, one of the constant characteristics of storms that come into our life is that often they come unannounced. Very rarely do we get advanced warning that a storm is coming. It's like having the 
proverbial rug pulled out from underneath us and we find ourselves falling and flailing, reaching out for anything or anyone that might bring us some peace and stability in the storm, James tells us quite aptly that we fall into various trials and tests. These sudden storms that the disciples faced on the Sea of Galilee this night in question were common on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know how much you know about the Sea of Galilee's topography, but when wind comes off of those eastern slopes of the mountains that are on that side of the sea, often uh, that uh, warm air uh, rises and that cold air drops and that change in atmosphere often will bring about sudden and furious storms. And that's the kind of storm that had these disciples in its terrifying grip this night in question. But there are some things that these disciples could know. They're the same things you and I can know that will bring us peace in the storm. Number one, you can have peace in the storm when you remember you are governed by God's providence. You're governed by God's providence. This storm didn't catch God by surprise. In fact, Jesus, Matthew's account tells us that Jesus constrained, he commanded. Another version says he made them get into the boat, knowing full well that a storm would be intersecting their lives. This storm was providential. You can know that God's wonderful plan is in effect in the storm. We love to quote Romans 8.28, and for good reason. It's a wonderful verse of promise. What does Romans 8.28 say? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to His purpose. And many times in the storm, we lean on that promise. But I don't know if you've had the same experience I've had, but evidently God's definition of good is different from mine. Because my definition of good is I have a little money in the bank, at least enough to pay the bills, and everyone's getting along and no one's sick. And I look at circumstances like that and say, that's good. But evidently, God God doesn't have that same definition. You say, what's God's definition of good? Well, don't stop reading Romans 8 at verse 28. Always interpret Scripture in light of the surrounding context. If you're going to memorize verse 28, also memorize verse 29, because in verse 29 we have the divine definition of good. What does verse 29 say? For those He did foreknow, He also did predestinate, and here's the divine definition of good, that we be conformed to the image of His Son. So God says anything that he allows in our life, no matter how painful, how negative, how confusing, if it brings us closer to Jesus, if it drives us to our knees, if it molds us more into the image of Jesus, God says that's good. You can have peace knowing that you are governed by God's providence. Did you know that Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher that lived in the 19th century, blessing millions of people with his messages and his books, did you know that He was sent home from college during a fever outbreak. And it was only while he was at home quarantining, I guess, that he went to a little Methodist church and got saved. Only later to become the great preacher that he became. Who knows what God is doing in your storm? But you can have peace knowing you are governed by God's providence. 
Another thing you can know that will bring you peace in the storm is this. You are growing by God's plan. Let me ask you tonight, when do you grow the most? When do you learn the most? Usually not on the mountaintop with birds singing and blue skies and sunshine. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine a few years ago now. He was just a young man starting off in ministry, small family, and he knew some of the storms our family had been through, and certainly we haven't been through near what so many others have, but we've had our share of storms, and he knew that, and I guess we were talking about those things, and he said to me, I'll never forget it, he said, you know, I just never have a bad day. He said, every day the birds are singing and the sun is shining. Well, I don't know what you would say if someone told you that, but I'll tell you what I wanted to say. I wanted to say, just live a little, right? Just live a little because we all know if you live long enough, you're going to have a bad day. But I don't, I don't wish bad days on anyone just because I've had a few. So I said, well, thank God, brother. I'm, I'm glad every day's like that for you. But the truth is that we learn and grow the most in the storm. Someone said our faith is like film. It's developed in the dark. Now, the Bible speaks of two kinds of storms. There's the correcting storm, and there's the perfecting storm. How many remember the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament? You remember him? God came to Jonah, and he said, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah turned his back on God's call. He didn't love the Assyrians. In fact, he hated them, and he didn't want God to show mercy on Israel's enemies, so he turned and went the other way and got on a boat, and you know the story. God sent a storm into Jonah's path, and I've always been intrigued by this story because it says, while every sailor, every pagan sailor was aboard above deck, each man praying to his God, Jonah was asleep underneath. You ever thought about that? Sinners praying while saints are sleeping? May it not be said of us at this church that we're asleep when people all around us are crying out to their gods who cannot satisfy and we have the answer. Well, the captain awakens Jonah. He tells them what's going on. They throw him overboard. You know the story. God has prepared a great fish. He swallows Jonah whole. Have you ever tried to imagine that? I, I just, I can't even begin to imagine three days and nights in the belly of a fish. I wretch just walking through the seafood section at, of the grocery store, so I can't imagine what Jonah must have experienced. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and you know the unseemly details. The, the, the fish regurgitates Jonah up on dry land, and now look at him. He's got seaweed wrapped around his head. He's probably bleached white from the gases in the whale's stomach. And the second time God comes and says, go to Nineveh. Guess what? <laughs> Jonah went to Nineveh. That's a correcting storm. And aren't you thankful that God in his love and mercy will sometimes send us a correcting storm? We get a little off track, a little off course, and God will send a correcting storm to bring us back into line. But this wasn't a perfecting or a correcting storm, this storm that the disciples were in. No, the, the disciples were in the very act of obeying a command of Jesus. They were right in the middle of God's will. You know, the devil's mean. He loves to lie to us in the storm. Loves to tell us all the things that we've done wrong. 
But listen, it's in the storm that our faith grows. In the long, dark night of the soul that we grow according to the plan of God. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 4.1 when he said, Thou hast enlarged me, God, when I was in distress. That's when you grew me. When I was in the storm. The unfortunate truth is that pleasure and happiness rarely are good environments to learn the lessons God desires to teach us. I walked a mile with pleasure and she chatted all the way and left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Malcolm Muggeridge, the deep-thinking Christian journalist who died in 1990, said the following, Every time I hear these words, I'm impacted. He said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on my life at experiences that at the time were especially desolating and painful. I look back on those times with particular satisfaction. And then he explains. He said, I can, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my life, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. You can have peace in the storm knowing you are growing by God's plan. You are governed by God's providence. You can have peace in the storm knowing you are graced by His prayers. Where was Jesus? John tells us like this, it was now dark and Jesus had not come to them. Have you been there? I have. It's dark all around and Jesus seems to be a million miles away. That's exactly where the disciples were this night in the storm. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was on the mountain praying. And who was He praying for? Well, you say the Bible doesn't say. Well, the Bible doesn't have to say because Mark tells us while He was in the mountain praying, He saw them toiling in rowing. He was praying for them in the storm. And here's where the baskets come in. Because just six hours before, Jesus had miraculously and powerfully used these disciples to do some miracle that no one ever dreamed was possible. And six hours later, they're convinced Jesus has forgotten all about them. They're all crying out for fear. This is the one that, that's taken us down. These are experienced sailors. They've been on this sea many times. They're all scared. They've forgotten all about Jesus. Let me tell you something. You may have forgotten Jesus, but He hasn't forgotten you. You may not be able to see Jesus, but Jesus sees you. He knows right where you are tonight. He sees you toiling in the storm. He sees you, and He is praying for you. I love that Old Testament character of Job. Job is a favorite book of mine, and one of the reasons is because if it weren't for the book of Job, we wouldn't know that evidently there, there's a regular meeting between God and all of the angels, good and bad. We wouldn't know that if it wasn't for the book of Job. And, 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 God, and Job tells us, chapter 1, Job's a, a righteous man, holy man. He hates evil. He loves righteousness. And then the curtain is pulled back and we see a meeting between God and all of the angels. And everyone is giving their report. 
and this is the Mark Sankey version, but it's, it's accurate. It's exactly what's happening. God says, okay, Satan, it's your turn. What do you got? And Satan says, well, you know me, roaming to and fro. And that's true. Peter says the, the devil's like a roaring lion, roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. And, and did you notice it was God that brought Job up to Satan? And he says, in essence... What do you think about Job? Because he knows Satan saw Job while he was roaming the earth. And God says, in essence, what do you think about Job? God's proud of Job. And the devil says, yeah, 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 I saw him, but you've got such a hedge of protection around him, I couldn't touch him. You take that hedge away and let me at him, and I promise you, God, he will curse you to your face. God says, okay, I'll take the hedge around down around his children. You can touch his children, but you can't touch him. You can touch his possessions, but you can't touch him. You know what that tells me? God's still in control. And Satan does his worst. I can't even begin to imagine the, the horror, the, the terrible day that Job must have had when someone came to him and in one day all of his children are taken from him tragically, suddenly, unexpectedly. Job is in a moment, childless. And then one right after the next, messengers come to tell him his, his, all, of his, all of his wealth has been stolen or destroyed. And in a day, he's lost his children. He's lost everything that he's owned. He was a wealthy man. You can see Satan lurking in the shadows, just waiting, kind of rubbing his hands, waiting to hear Job curse God. Job tears his clothes as was the custom of the day and puts dust on his head. He lifts his hands to heaven and he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Another meeting rolls around. It's Satan's turn to give his report. God says, what do you have, Satan? Satan says, well, you know me, roaming to and fro. And God again says, what do you think about Job? And Satan says, yeah, but, but if you'll let me at him, he'll curse you. God said, okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. God's still in control. Satan does his worst. The Bible says Job is struck from head to toe with open sores, boils, painful. He's sitting on an ash heap, scraping those open sores with broken shards of pottery. A terrible picture. And then... To make matters worse, Job's friends come. With friends like that, right? And the Bible says they come and they sit down and they look at Job. For seven minutes. That'd be awkward enough. Seven days. Seven days just looking at Job. Now, I have to say this right now, and I'm not in the bushes. I meant, I'm meaning to say this. I've heard people say some incredibly insensitive things to people who are grieving. Not meaning to. So if you don't know what to say, if you're not sure what to say, the best thing you can do when you're with a grieving brother or sister is not say anything. Just be with them. But seven days is a long time not to say anything. And oh, when they do open their mouth, 
they add insult to injury, right? They just pour salt in the wound and they start accusing Job of hidden sin. And Job goes down like anyone would. And he curses the day he was born. I wish I would have died the day I was born. And he goes down over and over again. But then Job comes up in these flashes of faith every so often. And one of those flashes of faith we read about in Job 23. And here's what Job says. In the middle of the storm of his life, he says, I go forward looking for God and I can't find him. He says, I go backward trying to find God, but he's not there. I look on the right where God usually is working and, and he's not there. And I look over to the left and, and I can't find God. I don't see him, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. What was Job learning? I can't see God, but I know he sees me. Did you know you're on Jesus' prayer list? Your name is on the lips of Jesus. The Bible says He is sitting at the right hand of the Father and He ever lives to make intercession for you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He sees you toiling in the storm tonight. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish pastor that lived 150 plus years ago, said the following words. He says, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a thousand enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is still praying. You can have peace tonight in the storm knowing you are graced by His prayers. You are growing by His plan. You are governed by His providence. You can have peace in the storm knowing you are guarded by His power. Each gospel writer tells us what Jesus said when He approached the ship. Here's what he said. Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It is I. But do you know what he was saying in the original language? Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. I am. That's what Jesus said. Don't be afraid. I am. And everybody on that boat knew what those words meant. They knew that now the most powerful being in the universe was standing with them in the storm. The great I am was there. Jesus didn't say I was. He didn't say I will be. He said I am. God is our refuge and help, strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Jesus says it is I. We're guarded by His power. There's nothing that comes into your life, believer, that first hasn't passed over the great executive desk in the, in the heavens. And God hasn't put His stamp of approval on it. He knows what you can take. And He has allowed that storm into your life for a purpose. And He's in control. I am is a proclamation of presence. Jesus came saying, I am here. And I am is an announcement of abundance. I am here and I am everything you need. I tell people, Jesus doesn't have everything you need. He is everything you need. If you have Jesus, you have everything you could possibly need. With Jesus, you have healing and 
pardon and forgiveness and cleansing and happiness and joy and fulfillment and power and enablement. With Jesus, you have everything you need. I am. In English is an unfinished sentence. But John records Jesus finishing those sentences in his gospel. If you're lost tonight, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're hungry for more than what this world can offer, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you're stumbling in darkness, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you're dead in trespasses and sins tonight, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You are guarded by His power. You can have peace in the storm knowing you are governed by His providence and growing by His plan, graced by His prayers, guarded by His power. And lastly tonight, you can have peace in the storm knowing you are guided by His purpose. Every time I read John 6.21, I smile. Because John just says it so matter of fact. These disciples have been scared as we might say, to death. This has been the night of their lives. They're sure this boat is going down. And Jesus finally shows up. And John just matter-of-factly says in verse 21 of John 6, then they willingly received him into the boat. I'm sure they did. Jesus, where have you been? Get in here. They willingly received him into the boat. And then the Bible says the most incredible thing. Immediately. They were at the land they were going to. You know why? Because they were guided by His purpose. What's His purpose? The same purpose for them that it is for you to get you through the storm. I love it when God will take me around a storm. I like it when He'll take me underneath or over top, but many times God takes us through. And His purpose for your life and mine is to get us through the storm. But the greater purpose of God in all of our lives tonight is not just to get us through the storm, but to get us safely through to the other side. You know, God hasn't promised a smooth sailing, but He has promised us a safe landing. And His purpose is to get us to the other side. There's not a, there's not a more fervent desire in my heart, and I'm sure in yours either, than for me to make it to heaven. I don't know if you've ever prayed this way before, but I've prayed, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes for me to get to heaven. Lord, I've got to make it to heaven. But I've got good news for you. God wants you to make it even more than you want to. God wants you to make it. His purpose, in fact, the very reason Jesus came and died and suffered was to get you to heaven. And if you'll let Him, if you'll willingly receive Him, He'll get you to the other side. Notice they did not get to the other side until they willingly received him into the boat. Now, I don't know who I'm speaking to tonight. Y'all look good to me. But God knows your heart. And if anyone is here tonight and you don't know the joy of sins forgiven and the peace the blood washed know, if you don't know that you're saved tonight, if you lay your head on your pillow tonight and you're not sure where you would go if you were to die or what would happen if Jesus were to return, I've got, I've got good news for you. That's a storm you can get out of immediately. 
sitting right where you are, your faith can reach up to heaven and touch Jesus and believe Him to be who He says He is, the Son of God. Believe that He is your Savior, the one who died for you, and you can put your trust in Him and commit to follow Him. And before I finish the message tonight, you can be saved and out of the storm. Because if you're a sinner tonight, listen to me, you're in the worst storm that anyone could be in. Because you're in the storm of God's wrath and judgment. He's pronounced sentence on you. But the Bible says that if anyone believes on Jesus, if anyone puts their trust in Him, they can be saved. And you can get out of the storm. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Don't I have to come up to that altar and, and pray and have people beat me on the back? Well, I don't, wanna, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea here. I pray. I long to see good altar services. I, I would love to see altars filled with people praying and crying and repenting. So, so don't get me wrong. And I think there's times when God does want us to make a public confession. But listen, you don't have to come to this altar to express faith in Jesus right where you are. You can lift your heart and say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. You died for me. I put my faith in you and I want to follow you. And right where you are, you can have peace with God and immediately be out of the storm. That's God's purpose for everyone. John Wesley. He's the father of, uh, I would think, a lot of our folks here tonight. John Wesley, you know how he got saved? You remember his testimony? Wesley says in his journal that his Moravian friends invited him and took him to a Saturday night service. It wasn't even on Sunday. And, the, and, and John Wesley went to that service with his heels dug in. He said, I went, well, he didn't say it that way. He said, I went reluctantly. He didn't want to go. And when he got there and sat down, there was someone, think about this, someone standing up front reading the preface to the book of Romans written by Martin Luther. Now, I know back in 1736 that was probably riveting reading, but my eyes would have been crossing if I'd have been sitting in that service listening to someone read. But listen to Wesley's testimony. As he sat there listening to someone read, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt as though I did trust in Christ and I felt as though he had forgiven me of my sins and justified me by faith sitting right there. I just, I don't, I don't know why I'm tarrying here tonight, but if there's someone who needs to know Jesus, you can do so right now. His arms are outstretched. He's walking on the stormy sea toward you and he's waiting for you to willingly receive him into your heart. Unless I miss my guess, most of us here tonight have already done that. You might be saying, Mark, I've already willingly received Jesus. How does this apply to me? Well, let me suggest to you this, that sometimes in the storm, you and I as believers have a tendency sometimes unwittingly to elbow Jesus away from the control panel of our life. Because we believe mistakenly, that if we can be in control, we can have peace. If I, if I can just be in control of the situation, if I can just be in control of the circumstances, then I can have peace. But our lives should prove to us 
should they not, that every time we try to get a hold of things and control things, we always make a mess. And sometimes without even realizing it, we find ourselves holding the controls and Jesus off to the side. You want peace in the storm, it will mean letting go and surrendering the controls back to Jesus because His purpose is to get you through the storm and to get you to the other side. But you have to willingly allow Him back into the control center. Let Him take the wheel. My dad, uh, we pastored a church in southern Indiana and there's a little town south of Bedford, Indiana called Shoals. It's 30 minutes from Bedford and in between Bedford and Shoals is a treacherous stretch of Route 50. Route 50 between Bedford and Shoals is notorious for terrible, uh, horrible accidents. Many people have lost their lives. It's legendary in that part of Indiana. So many bad accidents have happened there. And Dad was driving back and forth between Bedford and Shoals. He was preaching a revival at a church in Shoals and driving back and forth each night. And it was in January, and after service, he came out of church, and an ice storm had blown in. There was ice already building up on the outside railings to the steps of the church, and he made his way carefully down and had to chip the ice off the windshield and off his door to get in, and he decided he would try to make his way home in the dark on that mountainous, curvy, treacherous road. He topped a hill and lost control of the vehicle, and try as he might... He could not get the car to go where he needed it to go. And so finally he said, I took my hands off the steering wheel and I put my finger on the bottom of the steering wheel and I said, Lord, you're going to have to drive this car. He said, I don't know how it happened, but the next thing I knew, I was at the bottom of that hill in the right lane facing the right way and I made my way safely home. You want peace in the storm tonight, you're going to have to do just that. Take your hand off and say, Lord, you're going to have to drive. You're going to have to take control. I want peace. And you can have peace tonight when you know you are guided by His purpose. He wants you to make it more than you want to make it. You're guarded by His power. Nothing comes into your life, believer, but at first He hasn't approved of it and He's in control. You're graced by His prayers. He knows where you are. He sees you. You may not be able to see Him, but He sees you. And in the storm, you're growing by His plan. And you can know you're governed by God's providence, even in the storm. I want us to stand together tonight, and I'm wondering if our sister would come to the piano. And I'd like for us to sing that little chorus that someone sang, I think, on Wednesday. A song that says, He's my Lord, there is no other one who can calm the storms of life like my Lord. He'll give rest to the weary, give new life to the hopeless. There's no doubt about it. He's my Lord. Could I emphasize this again to you tonight? You can't have peace if Jesus isn't Lord. Make Him Lord of the storm tonight and you can have, walk out of here with peace. Can we sing that together? He's my Lord. Let's sing it. Make it our prayer as we close the service tonight. He's my Lord, there is no other one who
calm the storms of life like my Lord. He'll give rest to the weary. He'll give rest to the weary. Give new life. Give new life to the hopeless. There's no doubt about it. He's Some has already come to pray. Anyone else while we sing it again? Why don't you come on? He's my Lord. You can have peace tonight before you leave. Why don't you pray? There is no other one who can calm the storms of life. Who can calm the storms of life? Like my Lord. Like my Lord. He'll give rest to the weary. He'll give rest to the weary. Give new life. Give new life to the hopeless. There's no doubt about it. He's my Lord. While she continues to play, would you bow your heads for just a moment tonight? We're just going to take a few seconds here to see if there's anyone else who might want to just step out and say, I need peace tonight. You can be walking with the Lord, but you just need peace. Maybe you aren't walking with the Lord and you need peace with God, but whoever it is and whatever the need, tonight, I had something else planned to preach tonight and I got down to study and pray and get the mind of the Lord and the Lord said unmistakably, this is the truth for tonight. And so someone here needs peace. If you need peace tonight in whatever form, the altar is open and God is here and Jesus has His hands outstretched and He's saying, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So we're going to sing it one more time. I'm going to give you an opportunity to step out and pray and we'd love to pray with you and leave tonight with peace. Amen? All right, let's sing it one more time. And if you have a need for peace, step out and let's pray. He's my Lord, there is no other one who can calm the storms of life like my Lord, and He'll give There's no doubt, there's no doubt about it, He's my Lord. I also feel like Mark tonight, this might be somebody's special night. Thank God for the beautiful message. One of the points he talked about was a correcting storm. And Brother Wilson used to say every once in a while while he was preaching, 
God would much rather handle you with the word of God. He would much rather cause you to reason together. And he would like to just guide you and direct you with his word. But because he loves us so much, if the word is not enough, then God will send a correcting storm. He might put you on your back. He may put you in a hospital. There may be some catastrophic event. But God knows how to get our attention. And these are two of my favorite verses in the psalm. Listen to what the psalmist said. I'm looking at 119.65. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. Now that's how God wants to, to deal with us. But then he goes on in the next verse or so. And he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. He recognized that his affliction from God, his correcting storm from God, got his attention. And he realized that he was now keeping God's word. And then he goes down and says in 71, he said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Just stop and think about that. Storms can be the best thing that happened to you if they turn your heart heavenward if they straighten out your marriage, if they save your children. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Had I not been afflicted, had not adversity come into my life, I would have just went right on living and I may have walked right into hell without God. But God would much rather handle us with a sermon like this. We're going to sing another verse. Maybe someone here holds the key. But if you're not saved, don't wait for the storm. Come give your heart to God. Get close to God. Let God handle you with his word because he loves us. So we're going to sing another verse. And like Brother Mark said, you, you know whether you're saved or not. You know whether you're living right or you're not. You know whether or not you've got to get your mind right. And it's a wonderful thing when you decide I'm going to go God's way. I'm going to go God's way. And I believe there's others in this audience who would rather go God's way 
instead of having a correcting storm come into your life. So why don't you do a little soul searching as we sing another verse. You don't need to be bashful. And like Brother Mark said, it's true. You don't need to come to an altar. But sometimes maybe you do. Because if Jesus could go to the cross publicly, you certainly can walk a few feet and come down to a public altar. So God bless your heart. I just feel like there's some here that need to pray before we dismiss the service. So as we sing, God bless you. He's my Lord. Why don't you come, brother, sister? There is no other one who can calm the storms of life. Yes. Like my Hopeless there.